Hello and welcome to episode number 53 of the Draft Addicts, presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Chris Tripodi of DraftAnalyst.com, and I'm joined by Tony Pauline, and most importantly, we are literally one week away from the 2019 NFL Draft. Tony, what's going on between teams and players right now, and what's going to happen over the next 7 to 10 days? Well, Chris, what's happening is what's going on the past couple of years. Teams are doing last-minute interviews with a lot of players. They're calling players that they brought in for official 30 visits, and they're also talking to players that they did not conduct interviews with in the past couple of weeks. The interviews are done on phone, and in recent years, more and more teams are doing interviews via Skype. In some cases, teams are sending out letters to players that they hope to sign as undrafted free agents if they fall out of the draft seven rounds. And the San Diego, or now the Los Angeles Chargers are famous for this. It's a form letter that says, you know, we have interest in you. If you're not selected during the seven rounds, we'll be in touch afterwards, you know, to hopefully sign you as a priority free agent. I'm told that this year, more than in years past, teams have been monitoring players they are interested in and inquiring what the players have been doing during the layoff leading up to the draft. They've been asking college coaches. They've been talking to people at training facilities where the players have been working out around the nation. They've been basically talking to anybody they feel has a bit of information to glean you know, any last-minute education that they can on, the, on these players, especially what they've been doing during the layoff. The big NFL news of this past week was Russell Wilson's April 15th deadline for a contract extension with the Seahawks. That was Monday, and Seattle wisely budged in the end and made Wilson the highest-paid player in the league. Happened in the middle of the night. Wasn't reported in a lot of places until the morning, but by now I'm sure a lot of people have seen the video Russell Wilson and uh, Ciara recorded from their bed at 3.30 in the morning. Regardless, there's a four-year, $140 million extension through the 2023 season. It includes a $65 million signing bonus and also a no-trade clause, which kind of goes against everything that people were saying that Russell Wilson doesn't want to be in Seattle. He wants to play for the New York Giants. He might not have pushed for a no-trade clause, or maybe he just wants the security of being in one place at one time with all the money as well. We will never know. But we will see Wilson in the Pacific Northwest until he turns 35, by which age he surely will no longer be the league's highest paid player, probably won't even be the league's highest paid player in a year or two. But all of this leaves franchise player Frank Clark in a very interesting spot, because Clark is looking for a new contract that Seattle just likely can't afford now. What does this mean for the 25-year-old defensive end, Tony? I think it means that they're absolutely going to look to move Clark and trade him. If they don't move him next week, then they'll probably try and trade him on draft weekend. I can tell you this. Had he hit the free agent market, the New York Jets very much wanted Frank Clark. Once he was tagged by the Seahawks, a source told me that the Jets tried to pry him free via a trade. Now, the problem is the Jets were not going to give up the third pick of the draft for Clark. You can't blame him. And all they have left after that is a pair of picks in the third round. So right now, they don't have enough ammunition to pry Clark from the uh, Seahawks via trade. We talked last week about the Jets' desire to trade down. We've talked a few times before that as well about that desire. If they can get out of that number three pick, do you think they would try to work a deal with the Seahawks for Clark, potentially involving either the first round pick they acquire in that trade or any other later picks that they get? From what I'm told, absolutely. Remember what I said last week on this podcast. I'm hearing that the Jets are not sold on any of the pass rushers at the top of this year's class, except for Nick Bosa. Now, Granted, it would have to be a situation where the Jets trade into the middle part of round one and get multiple second-day picks, 
And I think that they would use those second-day picks as ammunition to trade for Clark. It could also be a situation where the Jets could move down multiple times if the opportunity affords it in the first round. I'll make, one, I'll make two moves, which other teams have done in the past. Now let's stay on the defensive side of the ball here, but we'll move back to the secondary, and we'll start with a position that we've been discussing here on this show a lot lately, and that's the safety position. Tony, what are you hearing right now about the top of the safety board? Yeah, right now it seems that Jonathan Abram of Mississippi State is the top safety by default. That's been reported by a number of people. Taylor Rapp of Washington and Deontay Thompson of Alabama continue to fall down draft boards. Rapp because he ran poorly during Pro Day. Deontay Thompson because he just didn't run. And all along, Abram has remained steady. As I mentioned two weeks ago on this podcast, I continue to hear Juan Thornhill is rising up draft boards, and many believe that he could slide into the late part of round one. Now, you mentioned those three guys. One guy you didn't mention is Chauncey Gardner-Johnson out of Florida. Where does he fit in? You know, on film, I grade Gardner-Johnson just out of the top 32. He doesn't have great size, but he possesses tremendous ball skills, and he's very aggressive defending the run. I will tell you this. Multiple people have told me there are some character red flags surrounding Johnson. So if he starts to slide on draft day, and what I mean by slide is slides out of the top 45, that's the reason why. Now, you mentioned Juan Thornhill, and as you said, we've been documenting his steady rise of late, but it's not just his combine workout that has him rising through the process. A lot of it is the fact that teams think he can play both cornerback and safety. On Wednesday, Tom Pelissero of NFL.com had Thornhill as one of four potential first-round surprises, compared him to Byron Jones, which is something we did two episodes ago as well, not just because of their combine workouts, which were similar, but also that versatility in the secondary. Now, when we discussed Thornhill as a potential first-rounder on that show, you mentioned the Seahawks could move down to select him, but they're not the only team interested in him in that range in the draft, are they, Tony? No. What I'm hearing is there are two other teams late in round one that would consider Juan Thornhill, the first being the Kansas City Chiefs, who are going to take a a long, hard look at him. You know, many penciled in Taylor Rapp to the Chiefs, uh, but that's obviously not going to happen now. The Chiefs did sign Tyron Matthew in free agency, but they still need another safety. The other team at the bottom of round one who would consider Juan Thornhill would be the Los Angeles Rams, who brought him in for an official visit. The Rams did sign Eric Weddle in free agency, but he's 34 years old, and the contract that was signed by Weddle, the Rams can get out of after a year. What about the corners, Tony? How do they stack up a week away from the draft here? You know, right now, it's anybody's guess. This is what I know from talking to people. Greedy Williams and DeAndre Baker are sliding down draft boards, while Sean Bunting and Rocky Austin are making a major move up draft boards. It's very possible that Byron Murphy of Washington ends up as the first cornerback selected next Thursday. Now, Murphy added about 15 pounds ahead of the combine. As a result, he ran a bit slower than expected. He ran a 4.55 in the 40. Obviously, his size will still be an issue for some teams since he is sub 5.11 and about 190 pounds, and that includes the weight he gained before the combine. Have you heard any updates on Murphy since the combine, and how high do you think he can go if he indeed ends up as the first corner selected? Yeah, teams are still guessing, you know, what his actual playing weight is. During Pro Day, he came in at 189 pounds, but he didn't run the 40. And if if memory serves me right, he didn't even do position drills. So teams are still wondering, is he a 189, 190-pound cornerback at the next level? Or is he a guy that's really going to have to revert back to 180 pounds or less to play? 
Who could draft them? You know, we've talked about the Detroit Lions wanting to move down, and I said that they would look offensive line or tight end. I think uh, they would also consider Byron Murphy, depending on how far uh, they traded down. I also think the Pittsburgh Steelers would give them a long, hard look with the 20th pick, depending on whether or not Devin Bush is available to them. Now, we've discussed DeAndre Baker in the past and the reasons he might slide in the draft, and Greedy Williams is the rare player in that he hasn't gone on any official 30 visits, not one. The last time that happened, at least that I can remember, was with Tyler Eifert back in 2013. Now, obviously, this can mean several things. Sometimes prospects who have questions or have trouble in their past, teams are going to want to meet with them and talk to them. Obviously, that doesn't apply to Greedy Williams here, which could be a reason he didn't have an official visit. But can you kind of expand on what's happening with both him and Baker at the moment? Well, someone told me last week that both Williams and Baker are taking on water, which means their draft stock is sinking. We spoke at length during the run-up to the combine about the situation surrounding Baker. He was not taking combine preparation seriously, did not look good in drills, really didn't run that fast, and, and it's cost him. You know, the greedy Williams situation is a shocker to me, and I think you said it right. I, I've spoken to a lot of people trying to figure out why he's sliding, and no one has given me a concrete answer. Measures six foot two, ran at four point three seven seconds at the combine, played well all year in the SEC and shut down some of the best receivers. As you basically alluded to, someone told me last night that Williams has no character issues or off the field problems, so a lot of teams didn't feel the need to bring him in. I think in the end, when it comes to Williams, it's paralysis by over analysis. And three years down the road, there will be teams who passed him up in the top half of round one and come to regret it. Now, what do you think his floor is in the draft? I know for a fact the Houston Texans really like Greedy Williams, and they have a gaping hole at cornerback, so I doubt he gets past them if he's available at the 23rd pick. Now, you mentioned Sean Bunting of Central Michigan as well as a player who is making a late climb up draft boards. We also mentioned that a couple weeks ago on our show here. The momentum for Bunting really just keeps growing. Do you think he could end up sliding into the first round? Very possible in the late part of round one. I know the Los Angeles Chargers like bunting a lot, and they need a cornerback. They could take him with the 28th pick. We spoke about the Kansas City Chiefs previously with Juan Thornhill. Well, they also need a cornerback, and I know that they really like bunting. I'm sure they'll consider him with the 29th pick. Bunting was in Seattle this week for an official visit. They like him, and he's a perfect fit for their system. I don't think Seattle would take Bunting with the 21st pick. I think it's more of a situation with the one we mentioned about Juan Thornhill a couple of weeks ago where they may try and trade down, collect some extra selections, then take a Sean Bunting or maybe a Juan Thornhill. Now, which cornerback needy teams at the top of round two are you hearing like Bunting? Right now, the Arizona Cardinals the Detroit Lions, the Buffalo Bills, and the San Francisco 49ers all grade bunting very highly. If he's there at the top of round two, I think that they would take a shot at him. All the teams I've mentioned have either brought bunting in for an official visit, or they've worked him out, or they've doubled up and brought him in for an official visit as well as worked him out. Now, why the late rise for bunting here? Is it just about his awesome combine performance, or is this one of those situations that we see every year where NFL teams have been high on the player for a while, but the media is catching up late in the process? I think it's a lot of the latter, what you said. If you remember, when Bunting announced that he was uh, entering the draft, right then and there on Twitter, I posted that he was going to be a second-day pick, uh, or it could be a second-round pick. And now he's going to go a little bit higher. He's definitely going to be a second-round pick. He may slide into the late part of round one. Why do teams like him? Well, you know, cornerback is a priority position in the draft. 
you look at his size, you look at his speed, you look at his upside potential. You know, we're talking about Greedy Williams potentially sliding down draft boards. Well, Sean Bunting, after Greedy Williams, is one of the better big press cornerbacks in this year's draft. And teams really like that type of player. Now, as always, we've got some more news for you coming up. But first, please support the draft analyst by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or any of the big podcast platforms. You can also find us at Believe.com. Leave a rating and a review. And if you have any questions you want answered on the show, tweet us at Chris Tripodi, at Tony Pauline, at Draft Analyst One, and at Believe Podcasts to get in touch with the show. Now, Tony, we already talked about DeAndre Baker, and I've used this same way before, but I'm going to use it again. There is another DeAndre in Georgia, and that's DeAndre Walker. Back in February, we broke the news of his sports hernia surgery here on the Draft Analyst Podcast. He underwent the surgery the Wednesday of Senior Bowl week, missed the combine as a result, but he was set to get an individual workout in before the draft. Do you have any recent updates on Walker and that workout? Yeah, because of the lateness of uh, his injury and the, and the type of surgery Walker underwent, he didn't do any type of testing for teams, didn't run the 40, didn't do the vertical jump. Instead, what I'm told is eight teams traveled to the University of Georgia campus last Friday and watched Walker do position drills where he looked good. Of the eight teams that were on hand, the Denver Broncos, the Chicago Bears, the Houston Texans, and the Carolina Panthers all had their linebacker coaches in attendance. All the teams, except the Panthers, run 3-4 defenses, which tells you something about Walker. And I know your feelings on Walker. You feel that he's best standing over tackle, which kind of fits with those 3-4 coaches taking a look at him, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think he's going to be very good at the next level. I think he's very underrated. Now that he's healthy, where's Walker going to end up in the draft? I think uh, eventually he's going to go middle to late part of round two. I think if he gets out of uh, round two, he's a major steal. When you watch this guy's game, he's got a complete game. He makes plays up the field. He makes plays laterally in pursuit. Again, I would recommend anybody go back to the SEC title game where Georgia had that game seemingly in the bag up until the last five minutes. And Walker was omnipresent, making plays all over the place as a pass rusher against the run, even getting out in space to stop screen throws. Uh, I think there's a lot of excitement about his game. They just don't know how he tests, which, uh, which will basically, uh, I don't want to say turn some teams off, but in some instances, teams will downgrade him because of that. Earlier Wednesday on the Journey to the Draft podcast with Fran Duffy, you talked about the topic that will essentially define this year's draft and one we've talked about often in addition to pretty much everybody else, and that's Kyler Murray and the Arizona Cardinals. Earlier this week, Cardinals general manager Steve Keim came out and said nothing was decided and that the team has no idea who they're taking number one overall. Now, obviously, that's what he has to say, and we're only a week from the draft, but really anything can happen. I mean, we're all old enough to remember photos of Laramie Tunzel smoking weed out of a gas mask leaking out when his account was hacked during the first round in 2016. He was considered an option near the top of the draft, ended up falling to Miami at number 13. The year before that, Lyle Collins fell completely out of the draft after his ex-girlfriend was murdered. That was strictly a timing thing in terms of a couple days before the draft. He couldn't get his name cleared and no team was willing to touch him even though they really should have taken him maybe in the sixth or seventh round just to take a flyer because those are low-priority picks anyway, or low-probability picks, I should say. Anyway, Collins was nearly a lot to go in the first round that year, and he fell completely out of the draft. So things can happen in the week leading up to the draft that completely change a player's draft stock. Now, 
We don't necessarily think that's going to happen with Kyler Murray, but we're kind to commit to taking him right now without having him under contract. He'd almost be bound to that no matter what happened with Murray over the next week, especially given that Murray plays quarterback and there would be no going back to Josh Rosen in that situation. Regardless of Rosen's personality, no one's going to deal with that and someone is going to ask out. Obviously, things are a bit all over the place with these rumors right now, as you can tell by my kind of rambling here, which really is just how the NFL likes it, as we discussed last week. Anyway, Tony, what did you and Fran chat about Wednesday? Let's start from the beginning. I posted a tweet from the Combine that Kiff Klingsbury was telling people in Indianapolis, Kyler Murray to the Cardinals with the first pick of the draft was a done deal. And I stand by that. But I also said in a story, which was linked to the tweet, that whether or not Kingsbury has the final say on the first choice remains to be seen, and that's where we are today, as I expected. We all know how Cliff Kingsbury feels about Kyler Murray, but as I insinuated and implied in the story, it may not be Cliff Kingsbury's decision to make. Obviously, he's going to have some input, but he's not going to have the final say. Now, several people have told me earlier this week, right now, the big hurdle is Cardinals owner Bill Bidwill, who is resisting the move to trade Rosen and then take Murray with the first pick of the draft. I'm told Bidwell was in favor of the move to trade up and get Josh Rosen a year ago so he could have his quarterback of the future. I'm told he's questioning why, after trading picks a year ago to get Rosen, then paying him a signing bonus of $10.8 million, why are they going to trade Josh Rosen for pennies on the dollar, and then they're going to have to pay out another a signing bonus to Kyler Murray this year in an amount that's going to be 23, uh, approximately $23 million. I mean, basically, Bidwell, who is the boss, is looking at it from both a financial and football point of view. We traded those picks last year to move up and get Josh Rosen. We're going to give Joe's, uh, Rosen away for a fraction of what we uh, traded away to get to him. And we're going to be paying out some 30, almost $34 million, if not more, $35 million in signing bonuses. And we're going to be starting from square one. So obviously, you know, what I'm hearing about Bidwell and, and his resistance to this move makes perfect sense. And, and many of us agree with him. What do you ultimately think will happen with the situation in Arizona? I think what's going to happen is the Cardinals are going to try like hell to move that number one selection for a bunch of picks and exhaust all their trade avenues. And if that doesn't work out for them, which I don't think it will, I think they're going to try and get Bidwell to sign off to make the move to trade Rosen and select Murray. Now let's assume that the Cardinals select Murray at the top of the draft. What's the feeling on how he's going to coexist with running back David Johnson in that backfield? Yeah, it's an excellent question. From talking with people, the belief is it's going to hurt Johnson as a ball carrier, but could help him as a pass catcher. Why do I say that? Kyler Murray's somewhat helter-skelter scrambling ability and his talent carrying the ball is likely to mean more designed running plays for the quarterback, which will take away from Johnson. But that being the case, opposing defenses are going to have to respect Murray's running ability and won't be able to cheat on screen passes as they often do, which means Johnson could well be wide open in a flat when he's sent out of the backfield as a pass catcher. So I guess the overall theme is there's good and bad, good as a pass catcher for Johnson, not so good as a ball carrier. I'm a bit surprised that people think that's going to hurt Johnson. Maybe Murray's presence costs him a couple carries per game, but it's really been proven over the past several years, decade, however long, that running backs benefit significantly when there is a mobile quarterback on their team starting next to them. 
Now, especially if Cliff Kingsbury is going to design running plays with the threat of a quarterback run baked in, whether it's a read option or whatever it may be, just that extra attention in that split second and the need for defenders to account for Murray at all times is going to cause hesitation. It's going to open up running lanes. And most running backs do see an increase in their yards per carry and their efficiency with mobile quarterbacks under center. So while maybe it does cost Johnson a few dozen carries over the course of the season, I find it hard to believe that it's going to hurt him as a runner overall. I mean, look at last year in Baltimore. Obviously, Lamar Jackson's skill set fosters a bit more of a run-heavy scheme than Kyler Murray's will. But Gus Edwards, over the last seven weeks last season, averaged over 17 carries per game. That was a split backfield at certain points during that stretch. And Edwards averaged over five yards per carry. And he's really not even in the same stratosphere as Johnson in terms of talent. So personally, I think Murray's addition will only help Johnson kind of rediscover his past glory, especially in comparison to the relative immobility and non-running threat that Josh Rosen provides. I think it's a combination of a couple of things. I think, you know, Kyler Murray is a bit more than a mobile quarterback. He's a guy who is literally a lethal threat when the ball is in his hands as a passer and as a runner. So he is a dangerous running threat. I think the other thing is, is, you know, with Cliff Kingsbury, it's just going to be a completely different offense. And it's going to be more of a pass-happy offense where you may move the pocket, you're going to move the quarterback, and it's going to take a lot away from Johnson's running game. I think it's the overall situation. Maybe I was wrong with with Kyler Murray. Maybe the better question would have been with Kyler Murray and Cliff Kingsbury's offense. Absolutely, because there are certainly questions of how Kingsbury's offense is going to translate to the NFL. I know David Johnson did come out recently and say that he was excited to run out of the shotgun a bit more often if that's what they are going to end up doing. If they do draft Kyler Murray, you would think that's the route that they go. But again, we don't really know where that's going to go yet. We'll know all of this by not quite this time next week, but about eight days from now, we will absolutely know what the Arizona Cardinals have whether they've traded Josh Rosen and really what that offense is going to look like. And I'm kind of excited to just see this all end, frankly. But remember, even if they trade Josh Rosen and they select Kyler Murray, they got massive problems on the offensive line. So, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what the end result is. The draft is just the beginning. It's not all over once they draft Kyler Murray because they got a lot of other holes on that offense, never mind that entire team. Oh, yeah. For them, it's going to be just beginning. It'll be the end of this saga, but it'll be the start of kind of the new era. And we'll see how long it lasts there with them. You know, two years and five wins later, the jobs could be on the line and just completely gone at that point. It won't be two years. (laughs) I mean, if they make the move and and they don't play real competitive football in 2019, jobs are going to be on the line in December of this year. Now, from the player who we expect to go number one to a player that someone's thought would be at the top of the draft, and that's Houston's Ed Oliver. Tony, what's the latest you're hearing on Oliver? Yeah, two things. I continue to hear the Buffalo Bills have a ton of interest in Oliver, which is something we spoke about last week. In fact, Roto World reported on Wednesday that the Bills brought Oliver in for a visit. We also mentioned the Atlanta Falcons last week as a potential landing spot for Oliver. So keep this in the back of your mind. I'm told that the Falcons like Oliver so much that they are open to training up to secure him. Obviously, a lot will depend on the cost of moving up and how far Oliver falls. But keep that scenario in mind. Atlanta could make a move up to uh, select Ed Oliver. One edge rusher we haven't heard from recently is Montez Sweat. He was a hot name after he blew up the combine with his 4.41 second 40-yard dash, which set a new combine record for a defensive lineman. Very impressive. 
His jumps and agility drills were also excellent, but it was later revealed at the Combine that Sweat had a pre-existing heart condition. Now, there are players in the past who have been prevented from working out as a whole due to heart conditions. Maurice Hurst, just last year, was sent home from the Combine because of his issue. Obviously, he fell deep into the third day of the draft when he was a first-round talent. Now, Sweat's condition was deemed low risk by the doctors at the Combine. They allowed him to work out in the end. Tony, what's the latest you're hearing on the Sweat situation? Yeah, I was told on Wednesday that after closer inspection and evaluation, several teams have flagged Sweat due to his heart condition, and he could drop a little bit further than people expect, maybe into the middle part of round one. Now, I haven't heard that any teams have failed Sweat, which means that they would take him off the board completely. Rather, he's been flagged, which means that they could drop him anywhere from a half a round to a full round. So again, let's go back to uh, what we talked about with Chauncey Gardner-Johnson. Uh, you know, If Montez Sweat starts to fall on draft day, very likely it's due to the situation, the uh, pre-existing medical condition with his heart. Now, we're still a week away, but this is the time of the draft season when weird rumors really start to pop up. Tony, are you hearing anything unusual that really piqued your interest? Nothing at the top of the draft, but I'm told there's a very good chance that the Carolina Panthers take a quarterback during the second day of the draft. They've been scouting the quarterbacks hard, and if the right one falls in their lap, that's the direction they'll go in day two. I'm also told that the Detroit Lions are also considering taking a quarterback during the second day of the draft. Now, both of those teams have had kind of dicey backup situations over the past few seasons. But would these moves be to kind of solidify the second spot on their depth charts? Or might the Lions and the Panthers be looking towards the future? I mean, Matthew Stafford's now in his 30s. He's coming off a down season in a new scheme. There's obviously questions surrounding Matt Patricia going into year two. And Cam Newton is becoming more of an injury risk at 29 and just kind of generally inconsistent. So are these teams spending that kind of draft capital on just a player they want to fill that second spot in the depth chart, or are they going to be viewing them as potential starters down the line in a couple of years? If they go that way, I think it's basically to add some competition at the quarterback spot. And, you know, if Stafford or uh, Cam Newton really continue to struggle, some a situation where they could yank those guys and put a, a younger quarterback underneath center. And that's all for the 53rd episode of The Draft Analysts, presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on any of the major podcast platforms and leave us a rating and a review. And feel free to ask us questions on Twitter that we'd be happy to answer on the show. As we said earlier in this episode, we're now just a week away from the draft, and we're also several dozen scouting reports away from wrapping those up over at draftanalyst.com. So make sure to visit the site for all the info you need on not only the draftable prospects, but also the undrafted free agents. We'll wind up publishing around 700 total scouting reports, which covers about 250% of the draft picks that you'll find in the 2019 NFL Draft. On behalf of Tony Pauly, I'm Chris Tripodi, and the next time we talk to you, it'll be draft week. Enjoy, everybody.